night before, we're driving out there. We were coming through Michigan. Mm-hmm. And, and you were with Coach Mar. I was with Coach Mar. And Coach Mar's on his news app or whatever, and there's it's on CNN. Everyone's getting spray hosed. And yeah. um, there's a couple people who lost their arm and, and a couple different things. They're getting shot with those rubber bullets. Yeah. And um, all this was going on while we're on our way out. And I start getting texts on my phone and people are like, my mom's like, yeah, I don't think you guys should go out there. What's up, everyone? I'm your host, Paul Rabel, and welcome back to an all-new episode of Suiting Up Podcast. It's a show where I delve into the stories of some of today's leading athletes, entrepreneurs, and entertainers, interviewing them and unpacking the psychology of their success. And this week's guest, he's the all-time leading point scorer in college lacrosse history, a Touraton Trophy winner, which is our Sports Heisman Award, pro lacrosse MVP and champion Lyle Thompson. Lyle grew up in the Onondaga Nation in New York and was one of five children of Dolores and Jerome Thompson. Today, he and his brothers are some of the best players in the game, competing in both MLL and NLL, building large digital and social media audiences, and are bringing cultural awareness to our sport. Lyle began playing lacrosse at a very early age, and on the show, we discuss how the game carries spiritual and cultural significance with the Onondaga and Native American communities. He recounts his early years playing in the backyard with his brothers, No goal. He tells me his family couldn't afford one. All of his equipment was hand-me-down, yet he was still the number one high school recruit in the country, only as a sophomore. Lyle shares with us his favorite workouts he does today, what he eats, how much he sleeps and travels. He sat down with me at my Brooklyn apartment with his wife, only a week before NLL training camp began. Yet perhaps the most intriguing part of the show begins in the back third where Lyle and I discuss his activism as a Native American professional athlete, specifically his time at the protests in Standing Rock during the North Dakota Access Pipeline dispute and his stance on professional sport mascots that are discriminatory to Native Americans. Enjoy this thrilling episode with pro lacrosse player Lyle Thompson. This week's episode is brought to you by the Paul Rabel Experience, an online platform that includes over 250 instructional and drill-based videos for the beginner and advanced player. We talk a lot about origin of the athlete entrepreneur on our show, and heading into Thanksgiving times the holidays, I wanted to share with you ours. Several years ago, I sat down with current Rabel Company's head of product, Neil Savage, to discuss one of the most valuable pieces of an instructional camp. And for me, at least, that was the tangible take-home assignment I would on occasion receive as a young player. You see, we can attend a three-hour or a three-day lacrosse instruction event and learn so many tips on stick work, dodging, and shooting, but it's in that where so much instruction can often lead to lower retention. So receiving an effective homework assignment served as a great refresher for me. And that is where the Paul Rabel experience was born. Why not leverage what we're pretty good at in filming content and create a hub for personal instruction, grant access to any player on the planet and work to provide virtual coaching so that the players can learn not only through watching, but doing. If you play lacrosse, coach it, or are interested in trying the game for the first time, I'd encourage you to check out the Paul Rabel Experience by going to paulrabelexperience.com today, or you can hop on your mobile device and download our app in the iOS App Store or Google Play Store by searching for Paul Rabel Experience. Now, if you want to subscribe, we're going to give you your first month for only 99 cents. And that means access to over 250 instructional videos of mine that are exclusive to the platform for only 99 cents. So head to paulrabelexperience.com and use promo code SUITINGUP. 
It's all one word, lowercase, suiting up during checkout. Enjoy. Our origin story together dates back to probably seven or eight years ago when your brother Jeremy came in and introduced us. We can't remember if you were a senior in high school at the time or a freshman at Albany. Yeah, it was at the, the War Memorial, I remember. I didn't, for some reason I don't remember Jeremy introducing, I just remember you coming up, so it was like kind of cool. Right. <laughs> you coming up and introducing yourself to me. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was at the Iroquois versus USA, I don't know what they were calling it back then. but Yeah, it was an indoor exhibition. Yeah. Yeah, I think we got our asses kicked. But I always, I always remember, and, and still to this day, enjoy going up against Jeremy. I, I wish we would, would play together at some point. Jeremy played at Syracuse, our rival at Johns Hopkins. And then in the pro game, we've always gone toe-to-toe and uh, have always looked up to him at, at what he's been able to accomplish and transcend with you guys. Um, and then fast forward to you know, a, a very kind tweet you sent out around changing your your workout routine from listening to music to now listening to podcasts and i was like dude we got to get this guy on yeah yeah so it's what i do now i just sit there and i'm not even getting pumped for it i'm just listening i guess you're kind of getting pumped because you're listening to kind of some guys have i mean everyone's have different perspective on things and it's motivating for me anyways it makes me see things in a different way yeah so yeah it kind of helps me in yeah. a way I appreciate that, In a different way than music. (laughs) Yeah, listen, I get energized around listening to other athletes and operators and entrepreneurs and the way that they're thinking about sport and life because I think there's such a big crossover between the, the, the power of sports and the influence that sports can have into our communities, uh, into businesses and, and certain industries. And, and I wanted to start there, um, given your perspective, um, as part of the indigenous people to our sport, I think there is some great education around the, the heritage of our game um, and it being a medicine game, going all the way back to the roots of, of the creator's game. And from your perspective, from your experience, I'd like to start by talking about the history of our sport. Yeah, I mean... Um... For us, for, you know, obviously me and my brothers and a lot of, you know, you're seeing more and more Native Americans make it to to professional lacrosse, Division One lacrosse. I think kind of focus on Division One lacrosse because, um, you know, I think for the most part, Natives were making it to the professional ranks right. as far as box lacrosse. But um, now I think for me and my brothers, we were taught a certain way to play the game and everything, the way my father taught us the game was through our culture. And I mean, like for, for us, um, you know, the way he taught us respect was one of the m- most important things he taught us and he kind of preached to us was through lacrosse, through, through our culture. And that's what our culture is about is respect. And then, um, you know, even just the hard work, everything you learn as an athlete, I learned through the game of lacrosse, but I think um, he kind of found a way to make it intertwined within our culture. Um, and for, for us, me and my brothers, we do camps, you know, all around the country. And, and one thing we always like to share is, is that story that Oren Lyons tells about the, the history of lacrosse and, and the game between the animals. Um, and it's a story not only Oren Lyons tells, but they tell within our 
native communities when you're young, when you're just getting into organized lacrosse, what we call peanuts. Um, you know, you might be five or six or, you know, when you're first getting in, the coaches usually tell you this story and, you know, keeping it intertwined with our culture again. Um, but it's between the land animals and the wing animals. And, and basically in this game, they're playing lacrosse. Every animal's um, playing and in the story, um, they're picking who's on who's, the land animals, the wing animals, and you got the bat. Um, who's got wings, but at the same time he's got fur. So he went to to the, I want to say the wing. Yep. I mean the land animals. Yep. And they're like, you're not on a team. You got wings. Right. So they the winged animal. He goes flying to the winged wing team, and they're just like, you got fur. Get on the other side. Yeah. So he goes back down. He ends up with the land animals, and um, you know the way Oren tells it is the game's going back and forth, and he describes every animal. You know. Um, a bear who's who's big, strong, got good hands. Um, going through every animal, their strengths, and then he gets to the bat and um, how the bat's untouchable, small. Uh, nobody ended, nobody even wanted him at the beginning, but ends up scoring the game-winning goal. And the moral of the story is to tell all these little kids. For me, when I was a little kid, was like, you know, there's a part for you in this sport. It's a creative game, and and. Um, you know, whether you end up a big kid, a small kid, a fast, a slow, um, find your strengths and, and roll with that. Lacrosse, uh, when, when you call it the creator's game and, and very much a, a spiritual experience, is it's a vehicle for uh, learning humility, learning skill sets, characteristics like hard work, uh, camaraderie and, and, and leadership. I think that, that that is kind of the broader scope of how it's fully integrated as you know, the indigenous traditional game. And so much to where you guys have even identified yourselves as certain animals too, which goes back to that story that you were mentioning and, and you being the hawk for your vision and yeah. Miles being the, the bear because of his hands. Yeah. yeah. And, and so how much through Thompson Brothers are you guys now working to develop the, the next generation of Native American players? The best way I can I can pass on, I guess, my knowledge, my skill, my attitude, and and hope that these guys, these kids behind me, you know, keep going in that direction, keep going down the right path, is by me just playing at a high level and doing everything I can do at a high level, whether it's lacrosse or you know Thompson Brothers lacrosse, teaching the game. When you think back to your time growing up, what type of an impact did your mother Dolores play on your development? You mentioned Jerome Sr. And, and everything that he helped you and your brothers develop, but he was also a full-time working man, and you said that you've worked a ton uh, with your mother. Yeah, I think um, I have this theory where you, have, you basically have three fathers and you have three mothers, um, and each one of them teaches you a big, uh, an important part of life, hmm. you know, you your three fathers for me was my dad, Coach Mar, and maybe I haven't found my third one. Uh, right now, I'd say it's Miles, maybe, hmm. um, just because everything they've all taught, taught me. And then for my moms, they would be my wife, my firstborn child, my firstborn girl, yeah. and my mother. Hmm. And I think my mom taught me... Um, I guess she taught me accountability in a way, but how to give, how to love, 
So I think from my, from my mom, the first thing I learned from lacrosse, not even just lacrosse, was like with basketball, school, anything, was passion. And I mean, my mom was passionate about what I was passionate about. And there was no teaching to it. There was no like, like my father had these drills, like everything was, was a lesson. Yeah. You know, you go out and play and you have to do it a certain way. You have to shoot a certain way. You got to practice this and that. But my ma was just like, get out there and play. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And, and I think, you know, everyone has that from their mother. They, they learned, they learned, your mother teaches you how to give, how to, how to pass down and, and to me, from from my mom was passion. She she let me fall in love with the game of lacrosse. And if you sit down and talk to my mom about me as a kid, I don't think, you know, nobody nobody but her knows how much I've put into the game. Not even my brothers, because every day she was the one getting me up. And you know, I don't know how many kids actually did this or ever done this, but I would wake up, she'd get me up and I'd throw some shorts on, some shoes on, and I'd go play lacrosse before yep. it, it was just daylight. And she'd get my p- clothes ready for that, the stuff I was wearing for school. Yeah. I'd run back inside, grab ready. I'd see the bus go, our bus went up the road. Yeah. And it'd take like a minute, a minute and a half to go up, pick up a kid, turn around, and come back to stop at our house because I had to go back down the hill. Yeah. And once I seen it go up, I'd run inside, throw my stick by the door, get my stuff ready, and and my brothers were always waiting on top, yeah. and I just become booking, booking up the yeah. up the driveway. We got a pretty long driveway, and uh, a lot of times they'd be waiting for me. The bus would be waiting for me, and then after school, I remember my mother would. She'd tell me I had to come in, one because it was too dark, or one because it was cold and I was going to get sick, yeah. or I had to dress better. Mm-hmm. Um, but somehow she'd let me. She'd always let me. She'd she'd let me out there. I'd sit by the door with my back against it and and wait for her to say yeah. But I think going back to that passion, um, you know, a lot of for a lot of people, they might look at it as their father that taught them that passion. Hmm. You know, taught them how to fall in love with the game. For me, it was my mother because um, she cared. She cared about me me being happy because I think you know passion is what leads to happiness. Yeah. So your mom instilled all of the passion. Sounds like your dad gave you the strategy to the, to acquire the skill. Exactly. I, I uh, I've seen videos of this um, this kind of like backboard that he set up, and then a hole that he carved out. It's just a little bit larger than the size of a lacrosse ball, and you guys use that to just not only have a, as a bounce back for passing, but you would aim to put the ball in that hole, and you can do so pretty regularly yeah. <laughs> which is not easy in the indoor rinks they had that little hole uh on the sideboards where the where oh, the yeah. press <laughs> and, and the and the announcer sits and we always try to do it we're sitting there for most of practice can't get the ball in the hole but was that something that that uh was a, a part of a big memory of of you in the backyard in those wee hours in the morning and at night yeah so we never had a lacrosse net um I don't know if we just couldn't afford it or my dad was just like, this is what you guys are using. But um, I, I don't even know how it came about. If he was like set it up and said, you know, we're going to work on this for accuracy. But it ended up being like from when we first start playing lacrosse to we might have just got our, our, our own net when I was maybe a sophomore in high school. Mm-hmm. 
but my whole life we used that and it was like once it because the holes we'd, we'd sit there and aim at the holes so much that yeah. the, the sides would chip away instead yeah. the hole would get bigger and bigger yeah and once he realized it was too easy for us he would like build a new one gotcha so we had like that board would be sitting there and then we'd throw another one right in front of it and we had like three or four boards just sitting in front of one another but yeah i think it it helped us for you know every, the part of lacrosse of of accuracy and yeah and whatnot but um well that's interesting because it's a big challenge for a lot of kids and you probably get this as regular as i do over social media but like, lyle paul what should i do i don't have a net and you're saying hey i, I grew up without a net and so what were some of the things that you guys did in and around besides just accuracy yeah i think I mean, we played everything on that board. So as far as like two-on-two lacrosse games, hit the board and it's gone. Hit with the board and it's gone in the woods. But we'd be chasing, we'd be fighting for a ball in the woods. So a point would have to go through that hole then. Yep. Okay. <laughs> so that would be your setup, and then you guys would just play a game that way. Yeah. So basically, goal can be creative, right? Whether you set up a cone, whether you have a you know a board with a hole in it, or have an actual net think about playing the game in, in way of scrimmaging with your brothers. You guys didn't really use pads or helmet or any of that stuff, which I think is another obstacle for our sport. Yeah. I mean, we always wore gloves just because Jeremy would always get super physical. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, I mean, it was still physical games between yeah. us, but yeah, we didn't, we didn't really wear pads. We got creative with, with whatever we'd built. We would like rub our, grab a stick and create our own crease. Yeah. Because they were always complaining I was running through the crease. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, we kind of just had fun had fun with the game. Yeah. And I think that's a part of the game that's kind of like, you know, we're, we're drilling kids nowadays with yeah. certain things, getting recruited. and um, There's less fun in it. You know, these kids aren't as passionate about the game. Yeah. They, they think of it as work. Yeah. And, and you grew up in, in Onondaga and, and, and talking about equipment, talk about stick making. Um, you use traditional sticks and you also now as a professional at all levels use the top grade equipment out there. Yeah. Uh, there's a, there's a difference, but talk about kind of that process and, and, uh, and your opinion on, on where the sport is going from an equipment standpoint. Yeah. So growing up, we, we use traditional wooden sticks, which are a lot harder to use now. Did I mean, you ever make your own? Um, I made one for my, my son. Oh, that's awesome. just four months. Yeah. Miles made his for his son, but um, I never made one. My father always just bought the wood yeah. and then made the rest, made the cat gut and, and netted, it, netted it himself. Just yeah. um, probably because it was cheaper that way and yeah. to kind of teach us that lesson of the history of where this stick comes from mm -hmm. too. But going through, you know, growing up, I always got the hand-me-downs as far as equipment. Mm -hmm. um, all my stuff was always big on me. I never really took much consideration into, you know, what I was really wearing until maybe college, really, the end of college on the comfort of stuff. Yeah. And, and looking back on how, how it really helped us as, as athletes play the way we – play as free as we want to, really, you know, um, being able to do certain things and not being limited, not feeling uncomfortable while you're playing the game. I think, you know, box lacrosse, I feel that because um, I think there can be some innovation as far as the equipment I'm wearing because yeah. I'm like throwing stuff together so to much. stay 
yeah. just to stay protected. Yeah, we have wrist guards, bicep pads, we use <laughs> electrical tape to wrap the bicep yeah. pads on our arms. But it's limited me, and yeah. you know, obviously, as far as the field game goes, that's like, I mean, I don't know how much further you can go. Obviously, you can. It's gonna keep going. Yeah, but box lacrosse. That's the way I feel, and as a kid, that's the way I felt. You were a four-time letterman at Lafayette, which is the high school you went to. Three-time first-team All-State MVP, all of the accolades. Um, but again, as we talked about how few world-class athletes were coming out of um, your territory previously in lacrosse to then your family and then those in, in kind of your generation as millennials uh, that are now breaking through into college, it was probably a little bit uh, of kind of uncharted territory for you. What was the recruiting process like? And then we'll talk about one of your, your three fathers, as you said, and, and Scott Marr. Yeah, I think um, for, for Jeremy me, was at Syracuse. Yeah, Jeremy was at Syracuse. Heine was, Jerome was, they were in the same grade and were supposed to both go to Syracuse. Heine was offered number 22 at Syracuse. Wow. And he didn't make it because of school. He never made it through Onondaga Community College. But for me, me and Miles knew we wanted to be together, kind of like Jeremy and Heine were. Um, our chemistry was a lot, I want to say a lot better, but to me, I thought it was better than, than my brothers. That's who I grew up watching was my brothers. So I kind of compared everything to them. And me and Miles knew we wanted to go to the same school. My sophomore year inside lacrosse ranked me the number one recruit in the country. And... I knew I was going to get more letters than Miles. You know, obviously yeah. I was getting all these letters from basically every every school, um, and Miles wasn't. He was getting, you know, pretty much the the schools around New York, um, besides maybe Maryland, um, UNC. But we we knew we didn't want to go that. We we wanted to stay home. We were yeah. too close to our families, and yep. and Syracuse was like the easy option for us. It was literally like Jeremy was almost lived at home while he was at Syracuse mm -hmm. and we care so much about our culture that we didn't want to, we don't want to move. We never wanted to move away from that. Came down to um, Maryland, Albany and Syracuse. And I didn't know Maryland was in the running miles. They wanted miles to PGA year. Okay. And miles didn't want him PGA. Yeah. Miles was heavier and they wanted him to lose weight. And he kind of had this attitude where, I guess the same attitude where I talk about that passion is he just wants, he just wanted to play lacrosse and have fun doing it. Yeah. And, you know, we start talking to coach Mar and like right off the bat, miles and coach Mar kicked it mm. and we're like tight. And me, I was a quiet kid. I've always been a pretty quiet kid. And coach Mar kind of recruited me. We didn't even, we didn't, we talked to coach Mar maybe two or three times, maybe over phone at a Turkey shoot, Turkey shoot, which was in Ithaca. But we never, we committed, we signed our letter of intent without ever stepping on campus or seeing campus. Wow. The way I seen it was I wanted to go to school and, and have fun playing lacrosse. Yeah. And I wanted to do it with my brother. Yeah. But at the same time, I seen it as an opportunity where um, I wanted to change a program. And I thought I could, you know what I mean? I, I had the confidence in myself. From what I was able to do in high school as a player, I thought I could go in and in change a program, but I mean, 
I think I did, but my first year, it was like an eye-opener. Like, this isn't what I thought it was going to be. Yeah, the game was just faster. So so you committed on on basically, you know, Miles and I are in this together. We find a relationship fit with Scott Marr. It's closer to home. Uh, they're passionate about lacrosse, and I want to help leave a pretty significant um, legacy on this program, which you did. So you guys go to Albany, and then freshman year, you're like taking face-offs and running out of the midfield, and you're saying it's 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 hard because the game was just faster and more physical, or yeah, I mean, it wasn't hard for that long because your sophomore year you <laughs> scored over a hundred points. In high school, you can get away with being the only player. You know what I mean, like. Like for me, I took faceoffs. I played defense, and I was the number one scorer in high school. Like, you could just stay I, on the field. Yeah, yeah, I could stay on the field the whole time, mm-hmm. and I just felt like I was unstoppable. You know, what I mean, like I like I remember in high school, I would run through doubles and triples and just like keep going until I was on top of the crease. And my father, everything was a lesson for my father, and he'd be like, "You need to stop doing that." That's not happening in college. Mm-hmm. And this was when I was like a sophomore and a junior. And he's like getting a good, he was all about good habits, mm. not having bad habits and, and starting to have good habits. So he'd, he'd tell me after every game this, and then I get to college and first time I try to jump through a double, I get popped. And, and um, you know, to me, I thought right back to my father, what my father said. Yeah. And then, but the main thing I realized was, it's so much more of a team game. Like you need every aspect. You need a goalie. You need a face-off guy. Yeah. Solid D. You need all these parts. It's not a one-man show. Yeah, especially in college. I, w- I would say the only team sport. Well, football isn't as free-flowing as lacrosse, soccer, or basketball. So if you look at free-flowing sports, uh, basketball because there's five guys on the floor, gals on the floor. And then even box lacrosse to an extent, although there's so much specialization, I would say basketball is arguably the only sport where one player can potentially dictate the outcome of the game because they're playing both sides of the floor, as you mentioned, too, for a long period of time. There's so much substitution and specialization in lacrosse, which is very different at the college from high school level. You know, everyone always talks about the speed and physicality of the game, but I think you're right. It goes, it becomes very specialized. That's a huge difference between high school and college. And then yeah. your impact is negated. Yeah. Because you exactly. can't stay on the field the whole time like you did in high school. But anyway, you get to your sophomore year and you figure it out just like that. I think I, I don't think I figured it out my sophomore year. I think I learned like the most important things my freshman year. Hmm. I played defense and one, Coach Marr built into me a lot of confidence I remember our first overtime game was against Hartford. And we go into overtime. No, we're not even in overtime yet. But we got last possession. And we bring in the huddle. And I didn't expect to get the ball. Mm-hmm. I didn't expect to be the man to make this, this game-winning play. And he's like, wow, you got the ball. Uh, you're going four dodge, whatever. And, and I'm nervous. Yeah. And... I didn't, I didn't make the play. And then we go into overtime and he's, we get the ball and he's calls timeout and he's like, Lyle, same thing. We're going again. <laughs> <laughs> so I end up making the pass to Miles. Miles made it to tie. Ty scored the game winner. But he did that to me like three or four times that freshman year. Yeah. Like he put it in my hands. And then come my sophomore year, when we, no, my junior year, when we went to, 
when we were in the American East Championship, mm-hmm. he didn't even ask me. He, we went to overtime against Stony Brook, and we go, no, we didn't go over. We're down by one yeah. with like 19 seconds left. He calls a timeout, and this was the year that like kind of me and Miles won the Torton. Yep. He brings it in. He's the whole team comes in. He's like Lyle, what do you want? And I was like, I'll take it at X. We'll go. Yeah. Whatever. I call the play. Yeah. But. It was just like I came in, and he just had the confidence in me. I had to. By then, we built this connection. Me and Coach Mar, we just had confidence in each other, where we didn't even have to really say it. He that's, just that's like, so huge. I mean, you look at the most successful athlete-coach partnerships, and it's truly a partnership. And it's like, hey, Lyle, what, what do you think we should do? Uh, the, the, so, so you're even past. The, the first hurdle, which entering a huddle is, I, I wonder who's going to get the ball. Announcers talk about it. You know, teammates talk about it. Coaches talk about it. And then they make a decision. Well, who should we give the ball? That decision's done. So now you're, you don't have to worry about that stress. You're focused on the play. And then the consultation is what most people don't do, which is, okay, what do you think about this versus that? And, and very, you know, I would say there's far more coaches that feel the need to design the play versus also ask, maybe design, but then ask the players what they think or what they're seeing out there. And that, that feels like the chemistry that you had with Coach Marr. I always use that. When people talk about my biggest moment in lacrosse, that was probably top three. Wow. Because, I mean, that year, if we'd have never made it, so much would have changed as far as my career, yeah. I think. Yeah, it was kind of a changing point for me. So you mentioned sharing the Tourton Trophy with your brother. It was the first time that had ever happened in our sport. But also the Tourton being the Heisman Trophy of lacrosse, uh, and it also paying respect to uh, the indigenous aspect of our game and the indigenous people. What was that experience like? And what were your thoughts and conversations specifically with your brother and family right after that award? Going back to my top moments yeah. of lacrosse, that's that's probably number one. That's one. Just because, um, I mean, everyone's seen the video as far as me being on stage, me and Miles, like, holding each other, crying, you know, the emotions coming out. It was something we said that whole year was like, maybe even the year before was like, it'd be so cool to win, you know, that award with, with we would share it. Wow. And... I remember saying it in an American East interview where they talked about it because I was a run, I was part of the finalist mm-hmm. the year before, so it was like into talks already. And so me and Miles both said it like we're we're both gonna we're we're gonna do it together. Mm-hmm. Um, I said it not thinking it would ever actually happen, um, but then getting up on stage, having a successful year, I thought we had a, had a good year, and. Um, the year we lost in Notre Dame. Mm-hmm. But getting up on stage with Miles, someone who shared, who basically take care of me my whole life. Yeah. And like I said, he was one of my fathers. Um, and it kind of just brought me back to being thankful for everything this game has given me, but being thankful for everything, really. And I said it right on stage was, you know, I thanked our creator um, for, for giving me everything that I have and providing everything on earth. But after after that, and I don't I don't remember. But I just remember you know going on your phone and 
notifications on Twitter. It's like you yeah. reset. It's 20 plus every time. And, yeah. And uh, same thing, Instagram. Everyone's just congratulating you. So, um, you know, it was a lot of a lot of joy for my whole family. Super powerful. You you, you say the, the, the attributes that the creator blessed you with, uh, but there's also plenty of athletes across all sports that are blessed with certain attributes but don't work hard or apply uh, from the ground up the, the, the necessary work to improve and, and kind of burgeon those skill sets. And you've done that through your work ethic, which is relentless, and even your attention to detail on nutrition and, and recovery. And so you, you transition from college to professional, which professional lacrosse is different than the NBA or the NFL and the MLB in that they are part-time leagues. So you were drafted first in MLL and NLL, uh, but now are kind of back into um, pre-college mode of having to train on your own and accomplish everything that you want to set out in way of goals on your own versus the team environment that you got in college. So right now, what are some of your daily routines or what's a, a typical training day look like for you? Yeah, well, first, I think one of the biggest things I regret about college was not, I was never a heavy, I was never someone who hit the gym. I hated, going, I hated working out. My thing was like, and Mar, Mar, Mar is cool with that kind of stuff. Yeah. He's like, yeah, yeah. And that's what I would do. My <laughs> yeah. freshman year to my junior year, those three years, I don't think I like, I never went through a full workout there. I would yeah. jump on the bench or the squat or yeah. do a couple reps of something and I'd stretch. Yeah. And I just wish I would, I committed myself there more. My senior year, I started to get into it. And then um, going in as a, you know, my first year, a rookie in both pro leagues was like an eye opener for me where like these guys are just big, fast and strong. Yeah, and mean. And, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and my thing, my whole life was like, you know, my skill will take care of it. But I couldn't have that. I couldn't have that attitude anymore. You know, especially to me in the MLL, it was worse because like, I feel like there's some guys in the NLL who get away with it still. Yeah. But it's, it's slowly shifting to where these guys, everyone's bigger, faster, stronger. Yep. In the, in the MLL, it's there. Yeah. Like these guys are, are, training yeah i mean look at you <laughs> yeah, they're just so like great athletes yeah. yeah and me being being a offensive guy obviously i'm using my brain and in, in different ways but the defenders i'm going against are huge now they're the biggest guys and they're strong they're the strongest guys from you know comparing it to to college yeah it was a whole nother level right and now i i you know, I love the gym. So yeah. every day I wake up, first thing I do is, you know, I get my stuff, my supplements together yeah. and drop my kids off at school and hit the, hit the gym yeah. for about two hours. Some people say it's too long, but I like to stretch for a good 45 minutes, yeah. which is important for our sport. Yeah. Um, so I stretch for a long time and I warm down for a long, I, I cool down for a long time. Yeah. That's pretty insightful as a younger guy. Usually, you know, you, you wait till, or most athletes traditionally have waited till their late twenties or thirties when they're when they're less limber to say, "Oh man, I have to start stretching." Yeah. Before and after, so you're doing that now. What gave you that foresight? You mentioned even stretching in college. My dad, my dad. was was like, my dad's like a king at brainwashing you. 
<laughs> so as a kid, he would tell us these like just the weirdest things. His I think they were his own theories. Yeah. But like he would tell us well, his his big thing was stretching, like really? if you're flexible, you're fast. Huh. And he's right. So I always kind of focused on on stretching. I can't say my brothers did, but it was yeah. me and Jeremy who were always like like we ran cross country, we did like yeah. A lot of running, me and Jeremy. So like yeah. that was like, one of our focus was being fast and staying fast. And my hips are bad, so like I hate that about it. So right. I want to make sure I'm flexible. Yeah, I think most lacrosse players I've struggled with it. I've had surgery uh, in the sports hernia uh, region, which is basically lower rectus abdominal and adductor muscle tears uh, because our, our our hips tend to be tighter because we're running hard straightforward in a linear way we're also required to move left to right laterally and and have great agility in our position specifically and then the motion of like coiling up and out on a shot just puts a ton of stress on your hips what i've learned too up and down the body is like your your ankle mobility and and your the joints on your knee and the ligaments need to be flexible so they can absorb each step. Cause if you're tight on your ankle and knee, then all of the pressure goes to your hips and you're asking for too much of your hips. Yeah. But what else are you doing in, in way of workout? I mean the past I've been in the off season. Mm-hmm. So me and my brother have been in kind of like a bodybuilding, uh, program. Yep. So we've been doing a lot of heavy lifting. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm coming into season now, so I'm going to start going, three three weightlifting a week and and I'm a big I'm big on doing sprints and like I don't want I have this attitude where like nobody's in better shape than me so like I'm going into training camp for Georgia Swarm and and I mean I'm convinced myself that nobody on the team is in better shape than I am yeah and same thing in the in the MLL yeah like you got the whole everyone who's there yeah it's a even guys edge. coming even even guys coming out of college you know but you play with Matt year. Abbott you know, I can even be in better shape than him. <laughs> I don't know. I, I mean, I think she's in helps in my head. Like, I think I could run longer than him. I can run up and down. <laughs> now, I remember growing up and, and lacrosse being classified as an endurance sport. People used to prescribe running miles and miles and miles. And then as we got smarter around the actual performance of our game, it became more about sprints, as you mentioned. Because you're rarely just jogging around the field, if yeah. ever, especially at the college level for the reasons you mentioned and now pro. What type of sprints are you doing? I've always been curious, like take us through a specific routine because I'm trying to evolve more and change different things and use different strategies. Yeah, so I mean on Tuesdays and Thursdays, I'll go to a track and I'll legit just run sprints as far as you know, 100-yard sprints, 60-yard sprints, 40-yard sprints, and I'll do, like, six of each of those. Yep. And um, even if I'm at the gym where my gym doesn't have a big space to do sprints, I jump on a treadmill, go full inclined, full speed, and I'll do 10 sets of 30-second sprints, rest for 30, once the minute, top of the minute, every top of the minute, mm-hmm. I hit a sprint. Um, and I think I do that before season. Mm-hmm. I mean, I do it kind of all year round, but during season, just because I feel like that's what box lacrosse is. It's like 30 seconds of just hard running. And then 30 and seconds then you're off. off. And then 30 seconds on. So I kind of train for my seasons mm-hmm. as far as like, 
you know, the NLL and the MLL. Yeah, because they're different. In MLL, you're on the field. You're you, as an attackman. You're walking. It's a little bit yeah. more like soccer. And then when you have it, you're going hard. Do you do specific? sprint exercises to work on your lateral movement or for the most part is it straightforward speed um just the position as far as the way i start i do broad jumps lateral jumps kind of just to work on that flexibility of that that part and that muscle but other than that i mean i keep it kind of pretty simple yeah what about nutrition um so for me, my brothers are like always on a super hard diet, Miles yeah. and Heine. So yeah. like they go, jump from um, the ketosis diet to paleo. They've basically tried everything. Hmm. Um, Miles, both of them have, have come a long way with it. For me, I stay on a pretty heavy protein diet. Mm-hmm. Um, try to get a lot of protein in just because if I don't, I, I drop weight pretty quick. Yeah. So like I can drop down to like 175 pretty easy. I'm yeah. 190 right now. Um, during season, I want to play at around 180, 185. Yeah. Um, and athletes know that to the to the pound. And you can probably feel when you're 190 versus 185 or 185 versus 180. I know people look so at me mental. sometimes like I have three heads and they're like, what's your playing weight? And I'm like 213. They're like 213. What are you talking about? 215 is too heavy. I can feel I'm slowing down a little bit. And then it's 210, so I, can't, yeah, I can't hit it as well. That's how I am. Like, yeah. I'll, if I'm like one, 185, I'm like, I feel like I lost a step. Yeah. So I'm like, That's I right. got to drop like three or four pounds or That's five right. pounds just so I can feel like I'm quicker. Yeah. And I, I was going to ask you about sleep, but I don't know how you, how you sleep. <laughs> you're, you're a father to four. Your wife's here sitting with us yeah. here in, in New York. How are you sleeping, and is that a big part of your routine as well? After listening, like, so I've never been into, I've never listened to any podcast besides yours. Thank you. (laughs) And I started listening to a couple, couple different guys, and you bring up sleep a lot, and how important it is. And with the swarm, we had like, even at Albany, we had like people come in to speak to us about sleep and how important it is important it is and i never like paid attention to it yeah um until listening to some of your guests talk about sleep mm-hmm. so basically what i'm saying is the past month two months i've been focusing on sleep yeah before that it was like probably six hours i was getting mm-hmm. and that's even like on game night like the big thing in the pros is you take a nap. Taking after naps. I know. I, I never do the nap. I got into it when I started playing professionally, and I just I would be groggy before the game. Is like literally everyone takes naps, and it's not just lacrosse. It's in the NBA. It's in the NHL, and it's kind of just this pattern that we've seen develop over time. And then I was working with my sports psychologist, and he was like, "Okay, well, let's talk about everything from nutrition to sleep, and 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 even workouts." The, the, the best thing that you can do as an athlete is to keep everything consistent. Kids ask me, what's, what's your pregame meal? And my response now is like, it shouldn't be different than any other lunch throughout the week. Actually, if you're eating unhealthy and you, and you decide like, oh, our game's in 48 hours or 24 hours, let me start hydrating now and eating well. Even, even because you're, you can look at, A, the, the benefits of water being hydrated, the benefits of eating well, 
by, by virtue of that being disruptive based on what your body's used to, that can actually be bad for you. And the same goes with naps. Like all of a sudden we're napping two hours in the middle of the day. It breaks up your kind of your churn cycle as an athlete. It can throw you off. So I've stopped doing that as you. Unless we and have I some hate, crazy connection and flight. I, I, hate, <laughs> I hate how, like, if I take a nap, I'm up after the game. And I, like, yeah, we have sucks. early morning flights. Yeah. And I'm not trying to, like, I got a family to get back to. Yeah. I'm trying to get six hours in. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's no doubt. And with the adrenaline that you have after games, it's tough to and settle down. I take down. pre-workout yep. before the game, after the game. So I'm already, like, yep. I'm already, like, You're pretty ready. jittery. It's, it's so hard to sleep after games. So let's talk about let's talk about professional lacrosse and and uh, what you accomplished last year. You mentioned the challenges of MLL, but you've acclimated there as you did into college and had a great season with the Bayhawks this year. And then NLL, you guys won a championship with the Swarm and you were MVP of the league. So you acclimated again pretty quickly. There's a trend here that we're seeing from high school to college now pro. What were some of the biggest takeaways for you if you were to look at, okay, I'm getting ready to head to training camp this year. This is what we did last year. It's really difficult to repeat as a champion in any sport. What were some things that you know worked in way of advice to teams that want to win their lacrosse season this spring? I think the biggest thing is chemistry. Yeah. I mean, our team chemistry was was just as good as my college team chemistry, which I think it's huge in college. And one thing Coach Marsh stressed was, was the chemistry of this team. Um, but yeah, I think just your attitude and, and kind of buying into a system where as far as playing at a professional re- level, you have to kind of find a role. Um, you can't just, you're not going to come in and do what you've always done in the past as far as if you're playing summer ball or, or college. You have to come in and... and buy into a system and we're it's it comes down to chemistry so for me um for the swarm there's me miles randy stats kyle matisse and i think one of the biggest things that helped us in year two was just the fact that miles ty and moose knew what know what i like as when i have the ball and i'm in this spot of the floor mm. this is where you're setting me a pick this is where you're rolling we just know that now after two years of doing it and after a certain amount of practices so um and so it's chemistry on the field and off of it then yeah i i think so and and from a communal standpoint we look at what the iroquois have done at the international level over the past eight years but i want to start back in 2010 when the games were in manchester england and you guys were denied the ability to come to the tournament using your Iroquois passports and you were asked to use US passports. Yep. I remember my brothers going down to near they were down here to mm. catch the flight to go head to England. And um obviously they got denied to to go into England. Um They were here our, in Manhattan, right? Yep. Yep. We in and it's because of our passports. Um so basically we were we're fighting to be a sovereign nation. Um the Haudenosaunee. So we want to travel on Haudenosaunee passports. I got to think about that. Yeah. So for me, when I looked at that, I was clueless on the, on the, what was going on too. Hmm. I was clueless on what it meant to be sovereign. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was still young. And, you know, as I, as I got, you know, started to get onto a bigger stage and, and understand more and understanding, you know, my platform, 
I made sure I learned about those things. And people are saying, I remember when that ha when that went down, people were saying, how are you guys sovereign? You guys have, you guys run your school through the New York State Department. You guys have a have medical center that's through the government. Um, but all that is through treaties. And a lot of our treaties were already, are already broken. And that's, that's when I start kind of learning more. And I'm still learning a lot about our treaties. Mm -hmm. A lot of things that people are, our own people are completely clueless about. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's important for, for, it's something I stress within people I know to learn more about it, learn more about our treaties. My, my mother didn't make it to ninth grade. She dropped out of high school. And she was bothered by what we were learning in school, what we were learning mainly in U.S. history. Mm. And I think the fact that it bothered her, when I would sit in U.S. history class, it bothered me. The fact that I was learning all this stuff and this teacher wasn't teaching everyone else around me who's, you know, white about my history and, and what happened to my people. You get, it's like completely ignored. Mm -hmm. And... It's crazy to me how many people have no idea that there was such thing as a residential school or um, what happened to the, the Lakotas in, in North and South Dakota. Um, and all of that kind of just mind bottles me as far as like, why, why isn't this out there? Why, why don't we learn about this? So yeah. I take kind of, kind of taking it upon myself and I'm still learning about it. Yeah. Um, to kind of educate myself and then I can educate more people. Yeah. And, and so the little bit more background in 2010, uh, but the, 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 the British officials who were hosting the event said that there was a lack of security measures and there was an ease of forgery as, as the reason behind the denial of the Haudenosaunee passport, uh, which we all thought was bullshit. And, uh, and, and inevitably, um, the, the Iroquois team refused to, to go the route of U.S. passports. And, and I think it had a lot to do with it. a lot of what you have mentioned, principles and respect and transparency around the process. Fast forward to the games being in the U.S. in 2014, a team that you did play on and you were an all-world player uh, from a recognition standpoint. And you guys won the first medal at those games on behalf of the Iroquois, which traditionally had been like a U.S.-Canada uh, Australia and um, medal round typically. Yeah. Um, so there was a huge moment, uh, and and arguably could have been you know the two of us going toe to toe in the championship. You guys were going uh, head to head with Canada and fought them to one and two goal games and such. But that moment then of of not only being in the 2014 games, winning a medal, but also being there as as a recognized sovereign. Um, entity yeah was pretty powerful for you yeah um yeah i mean being there anytime we're, we're representing you know the iroquois to me is he's you know I, I i look at the teams i play on and and how important each team yeah every team's important but whenever i'm sure you feel the same way about throwing on usa jersey mm -hmm. um you know there's a lot of pride there and that's the way I feel about like if I were like my goal is to I want to I want to be able to win a world cup and take the Iroquois to that level mm -hmm. um, I want to be a part of that and I think we're slowly you know obviously we're we're building to get that 
and um, I think it's an opportunity for for us to represent because there's not there's not another indigenous team that's mm-hmm. playing at that level at mm-hmm. a world level um, so I think we represent all of indigenous people which is really important and gives there's a lot of pride in it and where all a lot of other indigenous communities look at us and say like they're representing us yeah you know we're not just the Iroquois we're not just Haudenosaunee Walk me through your experience last year with Coach Marr and your um, peaceful protest efforts on behalf of the um, uh, Standing Rock community during the North Dakota Access Pipeline. When all the videos kind of start going viral, about they're viral to me. And not everyone else was knowing about this. Like Coach Marr didn't know everything it wasn't seeing all these videos they weren't on the news they weren't on mm-hmm. cnn they weren't on anything really they were just shared shared videos from other natives that i followed on like facebook or instagram or whatever it may be mm. and and once i found out that like the outside world doesn't know about this like the people who aren't native and don't follow native people don't know what's going on in north dakota it was like why doesn't like what's going on here? Mm-hmm. So I kind of use my platform in my follow, my follow base. You know, everyone who follows me is, you know, lacrosse players. Yep. For the most part, they're not native. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to go out there to see what it was like. Me and my wife talked about it and she wanted to make sure she wanted to feel, we wanted to feel what it was like to be there and what was going on there. And my expectations to going there was like, I don't know what I'm getting myself into. Everyone was like, don't go. The night before, we were driving out there. We were coming through Michigan. Mm-hmm. And and you were with Coach Mar. I was with Coach Mar. And Coach Mar's on his news app or whatever. And there's it's on CNN. Everyone's getting spray hosed. And yeah. um, there's a couple people who lost their arm. And, and a couple different things. They're getting shot with those rubber bullets. Yeah. And um, all this was going on while we're on our way out. And... I start getting texts on my phone and people are like, my mom's like, yeah, I don't think you guys should go out there. It's not, I don't think it's safe out there right now. Mm-hmm. Go in when it cools down, all this stuff. Everyone's text message. Everyone's messaging me. And I get there and the people there were like, it wasn't, I mean, we weren't on the front lines. We were in camp. So that was three different camps. The camp we were at had like 3000 people there in basically what looked like you know people were living out of tents mm-hmm. and building building communities together mm-hmm. and that's what i seen which i thought was crazy my idea was to go there i brought 16 wooden sticks and have a medicine game to kind of that was my way of of spreading my medicine and using my platform and and kind of bringing medicine to these people who i thought were sad i get there and it's a community and everyone's just like like you see a kid running around and you're feeding that kid. Yep. And it was just like, to me, it was like a closer community than I've ever experienced. And and I live in a pretty close community in the Onondaga Nation. But there, everyone was just there together. Every person I stopped at to let know that we were having this medicine game offered me food and coffee. Yeah, And to me, it was like, 
These people are, are happy for what they're doing, what they're fighting for, not the other way around. Yeah, it reminds me a lot of the characteristics that you were taught growing up from your family through the medicine game of being helpful, humble, courteous, being a leader and bringing those core attributes, which is, again is kind of the purpose of the creator's game into, into the broader life. And in this case, a peaceful protest and uh, one that is, is still going on. And the Dakota Access Pipeline is over 1,100 miles long oil pipeline in the United States. And uh, it's a $3.8 billion pipeline project. Um, and, and the opponents are mainly Native American communities, but also residents uh, in the area of which the pipeline uh, grows. And it, they're saying it threatens their water supply from the Missouri River across the sacred land and was approved without proper consultation from tribal leaders uh, and without a thorough study of impacts. And <clears throat> Donald Trump in office uh, ultimately signs an executive order to go ahead with the drilling despite all of the progress that was made and, and the travels that you had and the, just the Standing Rock community in return, they filed a, a joint lawsuit, um, which in June, a federal judge said, these claims are correct and we should stop um, the, the pipeline drilling. Then comes back in October and the ruling is, well, we can continue operating pending an environmental review by the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. Um, so that was in October of this yeah. year. And then they're saying the, re the review is due next April, so April 2018. So drills, drilling is going to continue to happen. Um, and then from, from one of the, the tribal legal um, um, contractors, he said the court already found that the corpse violated the law when it issued the permits without thoroughly considering the impact of the people of Standing Rock. The company should not be allowed to continue operating while the corpse study that threat. And that's kind of where we are right now, resubmission due in April of 2018. So how can people help or show support? Uh, and then what are, what are your plans? And, and, and basically, how can, how can we do well here? I mean, it, it almost feels like it's a battle that's like, it's just going to keep going on. Keep and going you can on. keep going against big money. But I think one of the biggest things you can do is just spread your word. Yeah. I mean, that, that's what I've done. Um, I try to support in, in every way I can, but no matter what, I think um, there's a lot of people who have no idea what's going on here, and I think it's important for it to be spread. Yep. I think the, the other area that, that you have been an advocate on on behalf of the Native American community is, is speaking out against um, traditional mascots in, in way of that have been uh, a form of bigotry and racism to your people uh, in a previous era, at least, accepted by dominant culture where, where sports is, as we know, a multi-billion dollar industry. And the National Congress of American Indians has, has been advocates of protecting civil rights and social justice, racial equality of the Native people. But you've cited the Cleveland Indians and the Washington Redskins. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and how's that process like for you and what's that experience been? Yeah, so the thing is, I think the big, one of the biggest things is a lot of Native, a lot of Indigenous people are, they're confused on the topic too. Mm -hmm. And I was at one point. I, I, I grew up a Washington Redskins fan. Mm -hmm. my, my father liked the Redskins. Um, but to me, what's 
the bigger story is is yeah the mascots but the name people don't know where the term Ridkin come from and and our own people call ourselves Indians and we all know where our Indians come from where the name came from it came from India they thought we were Indians coming off the ships um, they were confused but I don't I don't call myself an Indian mm-hmm. um, Ridskin the term comes from I'm not sure the date on it but skinning they would collect skins mm-hmm. they would cut their scalp off and and they would give I want to say it was like 70 no it was like 20 cents for a male 10 for a female and five for a, a kid this was in the 1800s yeah and that's where the term red skinning came from and you know what are the chances that the, the washington redskins are located in our nation's capital mm-hmm. um so and it's it's dehumanizing because I don't, especially for for native americans um i almost feel like we're not respected as as a our own as an ethnic group yeah you know it's almost like um we're gone you know but that's that's kind of what i'm being told if you're going to make a mascot about my my ethnic group is that um it bothers me because one of the biggest things that bothers me about the cleveland indians is the fact that our own people still call us indians like that our elders our chiefs still consider themselves indians so part of it is us edu- us educating ourselves on on the topic so i think um a lot of people are uneducated about it and you know it doesn't make you racist it's just ignorance yeah yeah i think that 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 makes a lot of sense and and hopefully resonates with with a lot of people listening who have uh, heard us talk with other athletes around empathy and the importance of um, not injecting your opinion into the topic and saying, "Hey, well, that's too bad because this is how I feel." Like this is this is a real feeling that needs to be acknowledged. I also think it's worth noting that since 1963, no professional teams have established new mascots using racial stereotypes in the name in their names and imagery of Native Americans. So. So there's some recognition there of like, hmm, maybe we shouldn't be doing this. And that's back in 1963. And then in 2005, the National Collegiate Athletic Association, NCAA, established an extensive policy to remove harmful Indian mascots, which we're seeing more, but it's at a snail's pace. Example, my brother played football at Dartmouth. They used to be the Dartmouth Indians. Now they're the Big Green, which is a win, right? Uh, And as a result of ongoing education and advocacy, two-thirds or over uh, 2,000, and and as you said, the Indian references in sports have been eliminated during the past 35 years, but nearly 1,000 still remain today. That's crazy. Yeah. So, I I mean, I'm fully supportive of of your efforts and encourage other people to do the same, Uh, and I think it's, it's critical. And that, and that probably takes us to to the next phase or your current phase of, of Lyle as a pro player, a role model, an activist. And um, part of the pro player is Thompson Brothers Lacrosse and, and efforts that you're doing in media to on, on site with, with young kids at events. Really appreciate you coming in and joining us, man. 
Yeah, thank you. It was a pleasure. Yeah. Um, always, always like listening. If you enjoyed Lyle and my conversation as much as I did, be sure to let us know and continue that conversation with us on social media. Our Twitter handles are at Paul Rabel and Lyle's is at Lyle4Thompson. Be the first to listen to future episodes as well as catch up on previous episodes, including my one-on-one conversation with last week's guest, 11-year NFL vet, media mogul, entrepreneur, now investor, Dahani Jones. All episodes are available on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, TuneIn, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your pods. Also, please consider lending us a subscribe. Shortcut to our show notes, including Lyle links, his social media handles, Thompson Brothers, lacrosse links, also other athletes, news, and headlines. Visit suitinguppodcast.com. Shout out to our show's sponsor today, the Paul Rabel Experience. Use promo code SUITINGUP to get your first month for just 99 cents at paulrabelexperience.com. Thanks again for listening, everyone. Mm-hmm.